Aloha and welcome to uh, the Two Wheel Revolution here on ThinkTechHawaii.com. I'm your host, Peter Rossig. We have a, a great show for you today. Two people from the government who are here to help us. And uh, we're going to end after a very interesting discussion with a micromobility moment. So stick with us. Aloha and welcome back. We're very fortunate today to have a couple of, of guests. Uh, let me start by introducing John Nouchi, who is the Deputy Director of the Department of Transportation Services for the City and County of Honolulu. John, thanks for being here. Hello, Peter. Great to be here. And we have Renee Espiao, who is the Administrator for the Complete Streets Program. Uh, Renee, thank you as well. We're I'm really looking forward to hearing from you. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. So let me start directly with what what do you see as the the role of uh personal mobility uh in planning the for the Honolulu's transportation uh, services when i say personal mobility of course i mean bicycling e-bikes and the, but now we see more e-scooters and e-skateboards and those unicycles and uh so we're seeing more and more of those what do you see how do the, those fit into our uh transportation services john why don't you start yeah, Peter, I really like that term personal mobility. You know, we've vacillated between small shared mobility, you know, small mobility, micro mobility. We have all these terms. And I think personal mobility kind of does say it best. It's everything smaller than a car, everything smaller than the things that we're generally used to. Um, you know, and I think it's a good time for us to kind of take stock and figure out what our city is going to enable and what we're going to have thrive as mobility for our our, our residents. And um, we want to look at a variety of ways that people can get around. And I've always looked at transportation in our city as, you know, we have to look at all the assets we have and all the assets we can mobilize. Um, I, I think until not that long ago, we basically had, you know, you could walk, you could take the bus, or you could drive. And, you know, those are three options. But in the last five to 10 years, we've seen the industry provide all kinds of stuff. Some call it disruptive. Some call it innovative. And, you know, I know this, this our topic today is on the two-wheeled mobility innovation. And it, it might not actually have two wheels. It might have three. It might have zero. I don't know. Hoverboards, you know, back to the future <laughs> made it popular back in the day in the 80s. But... We don't even know. So we have to do our best to kind of foretell, to be visionary and see what might end up on our streets. And, you know, as our Department of Transportation Services, that's a big difference in, in our department's name. It's actually providing services, providing uh, means for people to get around. I think we have a, a really great team in place to facilitate just getting around our city in different ways, um, ways that we're familiar with, ways that we know but we're about to advance into just new ways that we never maybe contemplated not that long ago. And I'm really happy to have our Complete Streets Administrator, Renee Espial here to, to talk about why Complete Streets are so important to that effort. All right, let's let's go to Renee. Renee, why are they so important? And how, does, uh, how do these personal mobility devices, in addition to walking, uh, fit into that plan? Um, so as you guys likely know, we um, are a growing city in Honolulu, right? We're increasing density. We've got high-rise towers going up all over. Um, and we actually really have to shift how we move around in cities. Um, 
because we cannot, you know, continue to drive kind of at the rates that we have traditionally, given the densities that we have coming to Honolulu. Um, so it's really imperative on us to provide facilities um, to help people make that transition and be more sustainable and more uh, affordable and just more efficient in how they move around our urban areas um, so that we're not all sort of trapped in our vehicles and stuck in traffic. Um, and those people who do need to move around by vehicles can move around uh, more freely. Um, so it's, you know, it's an important element of kind of our transition as a city. Um, <clears throat> there's obviously other really important reasons. Um, safety is one that is an increasingly um, apparent, uh, both to us and I think to the public. We've seen some yeah. pretty high Top profile point. crashes recently. Um, and so it's really critical for us to get better facilities out on the streets uh, to make sure everybody out on the roads um, are able to travel around safely. Terrific. Thank you. So we've seen a, a growth, uh, I think everybody would agree, in, in bike lanes. Uh, they've expanded and, and uh, they're continuing to do so. I think it started in the previous administration, but certainly it's continuing in this one. Uh, and so I wonder, uh, do you get more complaints from uh, from the drivers or who say, oh, no, enough of this already? Or uh, do you get more complaints from bicyclists who are saying, well, I want more, I want more, I want more? You know, it's interesting. Uh, the One of the areas most weaponized on our roads is the clash between drivers and bicyclists. Mm -hmm. I think everybody, if, if we were to just say that, you know, we want to put more sidewalks out there, nobody fights about sidewalks. Everybody would agree that sidewalks are a good thing. Um, however, when it gets down to the division between bicyclists and and you know road users who are the drivers, that's where we end up with the most conflict. And both sides will accuse the other side of over-dramatizing their needs or their causes or overstating the, how these spaces should be used. Um, if a lot of drivers say that, you know, they're they're a, a, a group of bicyclists coming and just, you know, coming with their torches and saying, we need the space. The bicyclists will also say the same about the, the drivers. But complete streets, our program of complete streets is in place through city ordinance. And it forces us, it compels us to actually look at how the streets are used. And every time we touch a, a street, a city, a city road, um, we are compelled to actually look at how we might make that a more complete street. So, Renee, if you want to talk about that, I think that's a, a part of the understanding of everyone out there, um, how the roads will be contemplated. Uh, yeah, so John was alluding to the city's complete streets ordinance. This was passed mm -hmm. in 2012. Mm -hmm. And it is not a suggestion, it is a requirement. And it says basically every time the city touches a street and the most common way that we touch streets is for maintenance and repaving, mm -hmm. uh, we basically have to consider everybody out there using the road and start to introduce some new design features uh, that we had sort of conventionally, traditionally um, omitted uh, in favor of just moving vehicles as quickly as possible. Um, so we are... Um, we have lots of corridors island-wide that we are looking at um, for transitioning our streets to be safer, to be more accommodating, um, and happy to share some of those specific projects, too, with you guys today. Okay, before you do that, I will say, I think, you know, one person can have both emotions. When I'm driving down King Street and I'm about to make a left turn, and I, I realize I have to look both ways for cyclists, 
one part of my brain says, oh, damn. Uh, and the other part of my brain says, this is a good thing. So, uh, you know, I think it's possible to have more than one idea in your head at the same time to realize the value. But at the same time, you know, every time I go over a speed bump on the poly, I get the same thing in my head. Oh, shucks, or some word like that. But this is a good thing. So how do you get people to come more along with the, the you know, telling people it's the rule, it's the law, it's the rules, we got to do it. That'll go so far, but I think it, people need to be convinced of the actual value of what we're what, what you're trying to do here. How do you do that? So yeah. ahead, I think Renee. we I think we actually are getting there already just by introducing these projects. Right when the King Street Bikeway opened in 2014, it was like nothing anybody had ever seen here exactly. in Honolulu. And yeah. we, I mean, the complaints came in for years, to be honest. Um, and I think some people are probably still adjusting to it. Um, but as we've kind of rolled out, you know, consecutive projects on uh, Pensacola and Ward and the upcoming projects we've got in Kaka'ako and downtown, we're seeing um, more public acceptance, I think more public understanding of the purpose of those, um, as well as how they operate. So I think, you know, we're, we're sort of breaking through some of that unknown um, and the public seems to be understanding, you know, what we're trying to accomplish um, and hopefully having a little more consideration for other folks who uh, maybe choose different uh, transportation choices than they do. And Peter, you know, when we, when we go into the public, <clears throat> we of course absorb a lot of the feeling out there, people's emotions about the project, and um, and other proposals we have that are that are upcoming. Um, one of the things that we've pledged to do is be highly data driven. Um, the data around these newer, uh, you know, uh, bike facilities, and you know, maybe we shouldn't even start. We should start pivoting towards a new term for them, not calling them just bike facilities. They're they're like mobility lanes um, that aren't for cars, but for everything else that is smaller and not a car. Um, but we we look at the data surrounding those and we use that to as our North Star in that we can generally see an increase of safety and a reduction in crashes. So to that, I mean, to us, that's everything. Um, and we also, with every project that we put in that touches the road, we do significant amount of traffic analyses to show that we're not having an extremely adverse impact on the existing traffic flow. We're not saying that we won't have any. Uh, most of the projects, there's some trade-off. You can't take something and get nothing, you know? And uh, so we we always like to look at that data, not only in advance of the project in planning, but actually the follow-up afterwards to make sure that it has the intended effects that, that we had wanted. Yeah, John's absolutely right. I'd like to jump in a bit going back to King Street and talk about the data there. Sure. So we had about uh, 300 people a day riding bikes on King Street before we put in the protected facility. Most of those folks were on the sidewalk which of course is not great for pedestrians, especially our kupuna feel very uncomfortable, you know, sharing that small space with people moving um, at the speed of bikes. Today, we see about a thousand people a day and the vast majority, 95% or so um, are on the bike lane. I don't know what is wrong with those people who are still on the sidewalk. I kind of want to yell at them, um, but you know, we've seen huge changes in encouraging people to ride um, and just, 
better uh, behavior overall. Um, so we do know that these projects do work. They can change people's um, daily habits. Um, when we put protection out there, instead of just you know a painted stripe on the road, people really do have a different sense of how it feels. I also wanna call out our pedestrian crashes along King Street have been cut in half since putting in that bike facility for the same reasons you talked about, Peter, with people making uh, left turns with a bit more caution, right? Because they're looking for bikes kind of both ways and the pedestrians out there are actually benefiting from that um, driver behavior as well. You know, sometimes when things uh, feel a little more dangerous, like say roundabouts or narrower lanes or um, having bike lanes on the street, drivers will sometimes approach them more cautiously and more slowly. So it's a little counterintuitive sometimes, um, but we actually are seeing uh, really positive changes um, in travel behavior out there as a result of some of these projects. Yeah, I read about a city in Europe or a town probably that they removed all their street signs and everybody thought, oh, my God, that's going to result in all kinds of danger. But in fact, uh, it made things safer because everybody just got a little more careful. So I don't think that's going to happen here. But I think that goes to your point about, uh, you know, everybody's kind of taking a breath and realizing they have to be more careful. Uh, and the other point, that I, when I talk to bicycle people, you know, everybody says, oh, Amsterdam, oh, Copenhagen. But that didn't happen overnight. It happened over the course of decades, actually. Uh, so you guys are sort of the the first uh, early step in that in that journey to me, uh, and I think that's great. So you were going to talk about Renee. You're going to talk about some projects that are upcoming. I know you're in the middle of the Kamoku Street uh, redesign process. What what else is going on? You or John? Either whoever you're both probably on it. Um, so the the most near term projects that people are going to see are in Kakaako and in downtown. We have um, two pretty major paving projects that are ongoing that we work with our Department of Design and Construction on, and they are actually going to be painting uh, first in Kaka'ako on Cook Street, Oahe, um, Pohukaina, and some on Kamake'e. They're going to be painting um, some new bike lanes there, and some of those are protected, too, with our delineator posts. And then the next project you're going to see right after that, um, later this year, um, you're going to see some protected bike facilities finally coming to downtown Honolulu. So we've got the mm-hmm. extension of King Street to Alakea. Uh, we have um, the new Alakea facility there, uh, and then Richard Street and Punchbowl will also get new facilities. So those are the most near term. And then, uh, as you alluded to, we are uh, laying plans for Keamoku Street, which will be paved in several years. And we've also got other projects such as University Avenue uh, that are also going to be transitioned in the coming years. So lots of stuff both in town, uh, but we've also got stuff outside of the urban core. Um, Kaneohe, for example, we've got some new bike lanes and some significant sidewalk improvements coming. Um, Kailua, right? We always uh, try to support that kind of biking community there um, Mm -hmm. and even others around the island. So really excited to see all these projects moving forward. That's terrific. And I will say, I, you know, talked to my friend Todd at Beaky and they were, when are you going to get out of, you know, your, your present footprint? And they've expanded it up to UH and other directions. But uh, there's there's a lot of this island that's left without the opportunity to uh, jump on a Beaky that would probably do it if uh, they had a stand station nearby and if they had the infrastructure to get there. So I'm glad to hear you're thinking about Kaneohe and Kailua and, and, and other places. 
Oh, and sorry, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention North King Street. Sorry. Okay. Colleen Weaver's right here. Um, super close to the urban core, but not able to take advantage of our growing bike lane network. So really excited to, uh, in the next year or two, uh, put that out for bid for construction too. All right. That's terrific. Peter, so, you know, there's a there's a lot that goes on, you know, when we're doing this planning, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of it, I, I like to think of it as a tug of war, a chicken and egg. You know, when we put in um, some of these facilities, people go, well, nobody's riding bike anyway. I don't see anybody riding bike. Right, right. But it's one of those things where if we don't put them in, if we, I think one of the things we've heard the most, even from advocates, is I would ride a bike if I felt I could do it more safely. Right. And I would say I don't think we're there yet. We have not expanded a robust network of of um of just of these facilities such that you can get almost anywhere in on the island and so as we grow we grow that certainty for people and we we, we people will start to think hey, maybe i can do this you know and renee bringing up north king is actually very 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 um notable because north king if you look at that whole area i mean it leads out of out of chinatown it goes into kalihi and it's Kalihi is definitely a working class neighborhood and it has all the things of uh you know a, a really well balanced place. It has in, it mixes industrial, commercial, and residential. And it kind of does that in some of the oldest parts of our city. Now that being said, you would think that you know all that density and all that industrial and transit and vehicular traffic does not make for a hospitable place for bike riders. So you would think people don't ride bikes in Kalihi, but if you go out there. You will see that people endure those conditions and ride a lot of bikes in Bali. So we look at, you know, the fact that that's we call. I mean, we look at that like pent up demand, and we're not even at if you build it, they will come. If we build it, we should have built it before because they're already there. I, I agree with couldn't agree with you more. And, and I, I mean, there's a Clayhee Valley bike uh, bike group that's uh, back there refurbing bikes. And, you know, a lot of kids are, are a lot more kids probably are on bikes in, in Kalihi than uh, in Hawaii Kai, I would guess. But uh, yeah, there's an area where a lot of people uh, are getting trying to get to Waikiki, trying to get to Alamana area where where their their jobs are, and it would it, they'd take a bike most days, many days, if only uh, it was a little safer and a little more assured and a little easier. I think you're absolutely absolutely right on that. Yeah, so we actually so, have some data on that too. Um, uh, to counter the, you know, nobody's going to bike. What are you guys doing this for? Uh, we actually did a survey um, several years ago, and it was Honolulu based. And we found out that about 45 percent um, of our population is really interested in biking, but is terrified to get out there um, without protected facilities. So we know that the numbers are there if we can provide the facilities. Uh, we also know that in the urban core, most trips are less than three miles. Uh, which is like a perfect distance, right, for a bicycle ride. So, okay. so the numbers are certainly on our side. Well, that that's good to know, and we just have to get that information out to to more people. So, let me change tax a little bit. The number of of uh, vehicles of personal mobility vehicles is growing. I think uh, we've seen. Uh, 
the numbers I was I was amazed to see in the paper the other day that there had been more e-bike registrations in the first two months of this year than in all of the year before. And many, I'm, I know many e-bikes probably don't even get registered. You can go into Costco or a big box and buy an e-bike today for $400 to $600. So we're definitely seeing this revolution. It's not coming, it's here. And there are more scooters and there are more skateboards. Um, and, and I wonder if you're beginning to see conflicts. So these things operate at different speeds, different kinds of e-bikes at different speeds, the skates, the scooters, all these things. Are we are we heading for some kind of a clash within the protected bike lanes? And how do we uh, avoid what we obviously don't want to see happen there? You know, um, I think if we don't take a good look at the lay of the land, all the devices that are available, all that 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 diversity out there, we're gonna have some sort of something Mageddon. And Renee and I were just discussing this yesterday about how we generally take a curb lane and we do a two-way cycle facility in there. But perhaps, you know, looking towards the future, maybe that's not enough. We have other things like Renee, if you want to talk about like NACTO, um, that's a National Association of City Transportation Officials. They're starting to look at new guidance for different types of vehicles that operate. And, you know, arguably, some of them are amongst us already. Um, I don't know if it, if it happens in this city, but in other cities, UPS and FedEx and other partners are using bicycles. But we do have really early adopters of e-bikes, Domino's. They've been using e-bikes. A right. lot of um, even um, DoorDash and those other types of food delivery services have you know, equipped cadre of people who actually use these vehicles to make their deliveries. But um, Renee, like, if you want to talk a little bit about how maybe we have to start pivoting on looking at different sizes, I think that's kind of an interesting discussion. Yeah, so we've traditionally designed our bike facilities kind of to the, the minimum we can squeeze in, you know, without having to impact too much of the rest of the road. Um, but what we're seeing from the national guidance is <clears throat> that those uh lane widths are generally not wide enough um, for these new devices that we're seeing. I know, for example, we have a few friends who have um, cargo bikes and they put their little kids in them, right? They throw mm -hmm. the, the diaper bag in there and then they can kind of cruise around town. Um, but when you start to think about maybe needing to pass a regular bicyclist or a um, someone on a scooter needing to pass a cargo bike. Um, you know, these are bigger dimensions. They're different dimensions than we're used to working with. Um, so that's one element. Um, the other thing that we're really seeing and that I know folks who have gone um, to continent cities and ridden the e-scooters is the attention to the pavement quality too, right? These A lot of these devices have very small wheels. Unlike bicycles, you know, they're not able to take potholes um, and kind of imperfections in the pavement quite as well. Um, so those are some of the guidance that we're seeing coming from our national association that's really focused on encouraging these kinds of modes is, you know, think better or think bigger and think better. <laughs> and you know, just, just to follow up on that too, I mean, we don't know. We have to be, I guess, open-minded about what's coming. Other cities have started to deploy delivery drones. So little autonomous <laughs> robots that are actually currently are remote controlled from remote sites. But whether we allow those on the sidewalk or whether they go in these multimodal lanes, in these shared lanes, or how those operate, we, we have to start thinking about that. In addition to the fact that a lot of, of um, online shopping, you know, as people are starting to pivot away from brick and mortar, 
those delivery delivery services may start to use larger style cargo bikes that are available in places like Taiwan or Singapore. And, you know, the one message that I think consistently we've heard loud and clear is these higher speed electric devices should not be operated on the sidewalk. And I think we have that as our guiding principle. We know that if you have an e-bike that can go up to 19 miles an hour, it does a lot against a kupuna who's walking two miles an hour. Right. And, you know, sometimes you have things that happen to you that, you know, you will always reflect on personally. And when I was walking in Portland, I had a scooter crash into me and I, I got knocked over. And, Oof. you know, the optics of that is just terrible. <laughs> but but it happened. Yeah. So speaking of scooters, you know, we all probably remember the Lyme disaster uh, of a couple of years ago. But I know there are scooter companies that are hoping the city will move along so uh, they could bring uh, scooters. I mean, they're obviously in Waikiki and Kakaako already with or without. What, what's the status of that? Where When are we going to get? Because uh, I think we'd all rather see it official and regulated than kind of, uh, you know, ha haphazard and catches catch can. Where are we on that? I know there are the uh, super pedestrian wants to come here. I think Lyme probably wants to come back and do it right this time. Where are we on getting some kind of a, of a right way to do scooters? So uh, I can offer a status. So we currently have an ordinance in place that um, has a permitting framework for um, shared mobility fleets, so say e e electric scooter fleets. Mm -hmm. um, what the companion piece that we have to um, figure out and that we have been working on pretty extensively in coordination with scooter providers and the public is how do we legalize their operations on city and county roads? The, the state legislature did incorporate that as a mode, as something in the traffic code, but it did allow home rule to prevail and allowed each county to adopt them in their own ordinances. Now, I think that's a very smart approach. And I thank the legislature for that position because it allowed each island to kind of take into account how these things operate in their context, right? Um, one of the, the things that we, again, safety being the ultimate guiding principle, in addition to the shared fleets, these types of devices, scooters and other things are just being, a lot of them are personally owned now. And so not just for the shared fleets, but for those that are operating um, scooters on their own, we, wanna we, we want to have a legal framework for their operation. But first of all, we wanna make sure everybody can do it safely. Um, and so we're considering where they may operate. And again, I think one of the things I can assuredly say, even though we still have to run this ordinance through the public process at our city council, is I don't anticipate these electric foot scooters ever operating legally on sidewalks. I think they do not mix. And I think we've heard our, our pedestrian community loud and clear. Um, so to that end, we then have to figure out where they do operate. And that's the part we're going to be working through the legal process on how to keep the riders the, the, the most safe. And even shared fleets aside, how do we keep everybody who's using these devices safe? Yeah. And how do we park them also once you get to wherever you're going is the other. I mean, that, that begins, even if you say you can't ride them in the street, uh, you're going to end up with some of them being parked on the, uh, or you can't ride them on the sidewalk. Sorry. You're going to end, you, they, they have to be parked somewhere or left somewhere or hooked up somewhere. So I, I'm, uh, I'm glad to hear that's moving along. We're, we're reaching the end of our, our half hour and I could talk to each of you probably separately for another hour because this is really 
great stuff. And I'm, I'm thrilled that we're in such good hands. Uh, I joked about people from the government being here to help us, but I, I think you really are, both of you, I'm, I'm very impressed and I'm sure other people will be as they watch this. So I want to thank you both very much. Stick around for a minute. We're going to do a micro-mobility moment. Uh, I'd like to have each of you back, maybe separately, uh, maybe together, and we can continue this conversation some some months from now when we see how things go downtown and, and, and in Kankakko especially. Uh, thank you both, John. Thank you, Renee, so much. Uh, I really appreciate your, your being on the show. Yep, mahalo, Peter. And now we're going to go in the last minute or so we have left. We're going to go to our micromobility moment. Uh, we try to bring you something interesting, weird, wacky, or important from the world of micromobility every every two weeks when we do the show. Uh, here's our, our micromobility moment for this week. Next slide. So there is a group of people very well known for their distinctive way of life. They have a distinguishing clothing. They avoid modern uh, devices. Uh, and they drive one wheel, uh, one horse buggies, uh, and they turn out to be very fond of a kind of micro mobility. And what kind is it? Electric bicycles. And who is it? You probably figured it out already. It's the Amish. The Amish uh, traditionally use this kind of a of a uh, scooter, a uh, big wheel scooter, kind of a bike scooter. Uh, that's been a traditional Amish travel device for a long, long time. And uh, now it is um, going the next step. And so we see more and more, not all the Amish, because they all have different kinds of rules and regulations, but the Amish have, have become, in parts of Amish country, big fans of electric bicycles and stores and shops that used to or still have places for them to tie up their buggies and feed their and water their horses now have installed charge spots so they can have uh, their electric bicycles charged. And uh, to me, that's amazing. Here are the sources for this information. If you don't believe me, you can read it online. So it must be true. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you to our guests, John Nochi and, and Renee Espiao uh, from the city and county. And thank you for to all my uh, my regular viewers for joining us. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Aloha. Thank you so much for watching Think Tech Hawaii. If you like what we do, please like us and click the subscribe button on YouTube and the follow button on Vimeo. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and donate to us at thinktechhawaii.com. Mahalo.